Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Dr. Selena Fisk. Selena is a data storyteller, an author, a speaker, and a facilitator. And she's the author of a book called I'm Not a Numbers Person. And that's predominantly what we're going to talk about today after we go a bit of through Selena's backstory. I'm really interested in this, this push around. Some people say I'm not a data person. Other people, I'm all about data and how it influences why people make decisions. So I think it's going to be really interesting. And of course, we'll be funneling that towards what it means for you as a leader. So Selena, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please give us a little bit about your background and what led you to be with us today? Yeah, thanks, Mick. Thanks for having us. I'm really happy to talk about data at any point. So hopefully this doesn't go too long. But my background, I guess, is that I'm actually a teacher. I was trained as a secondary school teacher and I'm maths and phys ed trained of all things. So I actually used to be a head of physical activity at one point. And I guess what I, I went and I was teaching in the UK and I worked in an organization that was really data driven to the point that student results. So as a teacher, year nine student results were ranked in the science corridor. And so students were, you know, there's a hundred students in the year level and they were ranked top to bottom. And that was really confronting for me having taught in Australia. And then I went over to the UK and in Australia at the time, there was very little data being used at all. But in that role, what I started to learn really quickly was while there was a lot of uses of data that I really didn't agree with and they weren't actually it wasn't actually being used well in a lot of ways. It was actually a really good way for me as a practitioner to understand and target my work a little bit better than I had been before. And as a middle and a senior leader, it allowed me to understand at I guess a strategic level the performance and the different elements of you know my sphere of influence that were working better than others. So I ended up leaving the UK and coming back to Australia and I started teaching again and I went back into a school in Australia where there was literally no data. So I'd kind of gone from this context where I could see that it was really good and there was some real potential in the information that we could collect to like just this vacuum of literally nothing. And so I, that kind of motivated me to start my doctorate and I worked on that over a number of years and I increasingly got into roles that looked at data and performance and specifically school and student um, data and performance. And I left teaching about two and a half years ago and I've, I'm now self-employed and I get to work with schools and now more broadly organizations on data storytelling. And the reason I've expanded out of schools is that what I've worked out and what is reaffirmed for me every day is that there are so many leaders in other spheres and other contexts, not just in education, that are really grappling with this idea of using data and using it well. And so I hope that in the work that I do and in the role that I do, I help people, you know, with some practical strategies and some clarity around what's actually expected of us with using data, because ultimately it can be super powerful and really useful and can mean that we know that we're having a significant impact and we do have an impact on the people that we're aiming to serve in the first place. So that's me. That's where I'm at. All right. Brilliant. Interesting pivot and an interesting way that you uh, got there. And thank you for sharing some of that experience. One of the things that you said there really caught my attention. You said something along the words of, I saw data sometimes being used in a good way and sometimes in a way that you didn't like. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so in terms of the stuff that I saw that wasn't great, leaders were being held personally accountable and responsible for data. And that was that created and developed a really toxic work environment that was really fear-oriented. And one example of that specifically is that there was a senior leader who was a brilliant practitioner, was a great teacher loved by the community, parents and kids just thought he was great. He was a very, very good operator. And one of the metrics that was used in the organization was 
the pass rate, so the number of or the percentage of students who passed the subject at the end of the year. And he didn't hit the mark. He didn't hit the target, if you like. And so he was put on performance management processes for the next 12 months. And he was essentially micromanaged by other members of the leadership team, purely because his data didn't hit the benchmark that they were aiming for despite all of those other things that we knew about him and the fact that actually nobody really had any concerns about what he was doing in the classroom, um, but they almost kind of had to follow a performance management process because that was just what they did in the school. So, you know, the impact not just on him, the impact on him was devastating, but it was a, it was a far greater impact on the broader community because it then made other staff think, well, if that's what they do for him, what if are they going to do the same for me if in six months' time my data doesn't hit the target that they've set for me? And we know that while targets are useful and important and goals are useful and important, there are so many different factors that contribute to whether or not you are able to hit that. And while you've kind of got to walk this line, I guess, of, of not allowing people to make excuses and find excuses for not reaching their goal, but you've also got to be a little bit smart about it and say, okay, well, in this instance, you know, there are these other extenuating circumstances or factors, and we're not going to go and put this person on performance management. Because, yeah, the knock-on effect of that was pretty devastating for the whole organisation. Yeah, I'm picking up something interesting there about culture. I'm also picking up something else that I want to come back to later. What I'm hearing in what you're saying is if you make decisions that are data alone without the environment around it. This is when you can end up with these situations. But the one I want to unpick now right at the moment is the difference between using data to inspire people to improve, to get 1% better, to get 10% better versus using data and creating a culture, whether they intended or not, a culture of fear. Tell us more about fear. When we attach data and numbers to personal accountability or even team accountability, that's where the fear is really going to start to take over. We also know that when there are targets set, that at the end of the day, there are ways of manipulating the data and manipulating what happens. And so even if you have targets and people are achieving them, if you have really ruthless systems that sit around the achievement of those targets, then, you know, it might lead to people actually doing the wrong thing to almost kind of just fall over the line. So um, they don't need to be flagged or they don't need to go through um, that performance management process. The flip side of that is that there is so much capacity and positivity and potential around the use of data. Like there's a default position where a lot of leaders think that when we use data, we're only looking at deficits and we're only trying to get people to a set target. And so we're looking at that gap. But actually, there's an awful lot of really good news stories, growth and progress and improvement that we see in data. So as a leader, it's also really important to be recognizing acknowledging those things that are shifting and improving and celebrating those with employees. Because when staff can start to see that there's some celebration and recognition of the good work that they're doing as well, it starts to alleviate some of the fear that, you know, oh, my leader is only looking at data because they want to hold me accountable. Um, It kind of flips the narrative a little bit. And in the organizations that I work with, I reckon about 90% of the work that they do is around deficits and only about 10% is, is around celebration and growth. And I, I reckon we need to kind of tip that balance a little bit to be more about 50-50. And the work of positive psychology tells us that, you know, when we learn about the things that are working and the ways that teams and the organization more broadly, if we're looking at the things that are going well, we're actually encouraged to think about, well, what can we learn from that? What can we take from it? What can we replicate elsewhere? What can we try? So we've just, we've got as much to learn from those really good news stories as we do um, the gaps. Yeah, really good. I want to unpack something there that you said as well, which is essentially the gaming. So gamification can be fun, can be can be great. It can be, you know, motivating and it can, you can have leaderboards and it can, a celebration and all those things. And I agree with you. We need to do more of that. 
and we're big fans of positive psychology and Martin Seligman on this show, by the way. It's one of the things that we talk about a lot. But this gaming thing, right? So, so if you create any metric, there's going to be some people out there, if there's a reward attached to it, whether, and whether that reward is not getting fired or whether it's a monetary reward or a holiday or you name it. I, I know salespeople around the world, for example, that are driven by their performance bonuses around the sales. And they will look at the measures and go, okay, what do I need to do here to optimize my number? Not, not optimize my result, optimize my number so that I get the bonus or I get this. So how do we avoid people looking at the measure and working out how they're going to game the system? Yeah, that's really hard because when, as I say, there's value in having a goal or a target because if we don't have that, what are we aiming for? For me, it's around the transparency and open and regular conversations about the fact that there are a lot of other factors that contribute to any single metric at any one time. So, and this kind of goes back to the point that you were bringing up before after one of my other comments was, We never want to be using just one metric or being driven by a single metric. And this was kind of a point that you made earlier. I always make the distinction between being data-informed versus data-driven. And I think as leaders, we need to be able to articulate that distinction really clearly to our employees and our actions and the, uh, the steps that we take with data need to be reflective of that. So when I think of an organization that is data-driven, they take the numbers and all of their business decisions are informed by just the numbers themselves. They don't take into consideration anything else. So like that example of the senior leader who was put on performance management processes, that was a data-driven decision. He didn't hit the target. So as leaders, if we reframe that and encourage our organizations and teams and employees to be informed by the data, it allows us to, I guess, make some concessions and have almost softer targets rather than a really hard line where people potentially might game their way into achieving it. So the example, say for him, uh, the example of that leader in the school would be that Yes, his number itself didn't hit the mark, but there are all of these other bits of data that we've got on him. We've actually got reviews and evaluations that have been done by students and parents that are rating him quite highly. We've got observations of his work that are actually documented and we have all of that data. And so rather than just looking at the one metric and saying, okay, well, we're going to put him through this performance management process, it's going, well, that's one metric. Plus, we also know all of these other things about him, so therefore we're not actually going to put him on performance management processes. The other one, if I've not been talking for too long, the other one for me is around the idea of triangulation. So it's one of those other things that I advocate for really strongly. And triangulation means that we look at three or more data sets, so three, four, five, maybe maximum, to inform our decision-making. So while, as I say, while targets and goals are good, we should also not just be looking at a single metric in terms of, you know, a bonus, for example. So rather than just looking at sales that a person is making, you know, maybe we take into consideration even like their score and maybe also the review score that they're getting from their supervisor. And so the decision that we make about a bonus for them is a combination of three sets of data. Think about somebody who is a brilliant operator who's getting five stars from customers and five stars from their line managers, but maybe they miss a target by $2,000 in their sales. Why would we not give them a bonus? So yeah, I think the more we can look at multiple data sets, the more likely we are to be informed by the data rather than driven by it. And I think the less likely people are to game or play the system. This was my favorite part of your book. And that's why I was kind of alluding to that question before. So I love this. I love this concept called data informed, not data driven. Uh, And if it's data driven to the level of bureaucracy, that's when we have, you know, black and white decisions being made in an inhuman way. And it's just based on a number that may or may not have even been the right thing to measure in the first place. Right. So, yeah, really good. Oh, sorry. I was just going to throw in there. One of the examples in the book is around Jeff Bezos with Amazon Prime. And he kind of openly says like people assume that he's really data driven. And he said all of the data on Amazon Prime, when they were road testing the idea, all of the data that they were collecting, the hard data was actually indicating that Amazon Prime wouldn't work. And he had all of this other anecdotal 
and ex- experiential data essentially. And he went, oh, I re- actually think that this has got real potential and, and potentially could work for us. And obviously they tried it anyway. So that was a, a decision and an action that was not driven by the data because if he'd actually followed the data, it wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have ever done it. There's another gentleman that talks about the decision-making from data often. And he says, um, and I really liked one example he used. He said, if we think about return on investment of having kids, if we thought about that as a purely data-driven decision, <laughs> nobody would ever have kids. <laughs> it's an expensive exercise. We'd never have it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, wow. Or if anything, it's a it's a very long-term investment because it doesn't pay off in a long way. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's 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 a good one, Selena. And so let, let's unpack the Bezos one. This is a great one. This will get, I think this might get a bit challenging here for a moment. So we now know pretty much unequivocally that people make decisions emotionally and they justify them rationally, right? So the limbic brain is the one that makes all, nearly all of our decisions with one exception, which is if we're in a fight, flight or freeze situation and our survival is under threat, we, our root brain uh, or our reptilian brain kicks in. But beyond that, we use our limbic brain for emotions. Uh, oh, sorry, limbic brain for emotions and decisions. And our neocortex is the one that processes data and can do calculations, etc. So let's pick apart this Bezos one, right? So data is there to support us, but in the end, we're going to make an emotional decision anyway, right? Yeah, good question. Yes, potentially. There are certainly people... And you don't hear about these stories, obviously, because they don't come off. But I'm sure there's been plenty of people in that situation of Jeff Bezos who've looked at the numbers and thought, okay, well, I'm not actually going to give that a go um, and haven't acted on it. And so we we can't hear the story at the other end because they don't become the Amazon primes of the world. But for me, yeah, you're absolutely right. And in psychology, you know, they talk about the rider and the elephant and the, the elephant is the emotional... Um, emotive kind of side of the decision-making and and the rider is the rational part. And we actually need to kind of use the two together in order to be able to direct and move the elephant. And that for me is why data storytelling is such a vital part of this whole conversation and why I say that I'm a data storyteller because it is a combination of the numbers and the narrative and the, the human impacts and what it means for our organizations that actually means that we can land this stuff and we can actually use data in a way that benefits us and our organizations and our clients. The problem that I see, and I guess this really stems back to us as kids even, we go to school in, you know, in year one and we learn English and we learn maths and we learn those two things in very separate, almost siloed ways. And that while that is still the model that we use and we've got graduates obviously who've done maths and English at different times all the way through the education career, in this space, looking at those two things is completely separate, doesn't serve the purpose anymore because people very early on decide that they're either good at numbers or they're not or they're good at English and and words or they're not. And I was absolutely somebody who used to say, I'm not a words person, like I can work with numbers, but I'm not really a words person, which is ironic because I've written a couple of books. Yeah. (laughs) And then the flip side of that is that I work with people all the time who say to me, well, I'm not a numbers person. Like, Selena, I get it. I understand that I should be using data, but I'm just not a numbers person. And I think that those experiences that we have from a really young age in primary school or elementary school are absolutely fundamental and a key in our, I guess, almost like an identity of whether or not where we lean one way or the other. But when we do this well, we actually combine the two and we use the rational and the emotional and narrative and we think about what it means for our organisation. It's a long time since I was at school, but I can tell you the, ex- the exams that I used to like the most were not the pure math or the pure English. It was the, it was the ones where they would say, you know, uh, there'd be some kind of problem solving associated, there'd be a narrative and then you've got to work out the, the solution. So, and that's more like real life, right? So real life is, is full of different things. It's not just full of numbers, it's full of different things. That's you know, it's really interesting. All right, what about the ability to use numbers to justify any argument? So um, tricky ground here if we talk about COVID, but let's do it for a moment. 
So two vehement sides, anti-vax and vax people on the COVID argument. And some people even saying COVID was a hoax at one point, I remember. And people will look at the exact same data and justify their argument using the same data. How does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, Adam Grant wrote a book, Think Again, which I'm sure you are aware of and it came out last year and I really like it. He says that too often people think like a politician, a prosecutor or a preacher and in all of those ways of thinking we're not open to taking on new data and new evidence but actually what we should be aspiring to do is to think like scientists and what scientists do is that they they have a hypothesis and they so they have an idea of what they think is going on and they go and do their own research their own independent research and they seek data that you know tells them about their hypothesis but if the hypothesis is starting to be tested they also they don't just keep digging in that hole that's telling them that what they believe is right they actually go and actively seek data that contradicts the hypothesis as well so they're giving a more measured or they're, they're kind of collecting data on from different perspectives. The problem and the challenge, I guess, in the COVID space and political sphere is that we, our social media feeds are filled with perceptions and perspectives that are like ours. And in my book, I talk about confirmation bias, which is where we look for data and evidence that reaffirms what we already think and believe. And social media is awesome. I love it, but it's also really bad for that because I follow news sources that align with my beliefs. I follow influencers who have similar views to me. My friends generally have the same views and perspectives on COVID and politics as I do. So it's almost like this echo chamber that we end up in and we're not and it's it's no no fault of our own because you know it's meant to be a social fun place to hang out, but we're not actively seeking out alternative views or alternative research, um, which makes it hard. So I think that that's certainly a part of it. The other part is actually scientific literacy. So building people's ability to do that inquiry or investigation themselves. And in the last, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 years in schools, education boards and teachers have realised that we actually need to be teaching young people critical literacy. So when you see a news article, it's being able to question the credibility and validity and reliability of the information that's being quoted. And, you know, as a teacher, one of my pet hates used to be, and this is probably every person who's ever taught kids, you know, you can't quote Wikipedia because Wikipedia, as we know, can be edited and updated by anybody who has a contribution or a contributor's account. And it's super useful and it's a great place to start. But what I used to always say to my kids was don't believe what happens on the first part or the first paragraph of Wikipedia. Actually go to the bottom where things have been quoted and go and look for the scientific journals and research and use and quote that. So, yeah, it's certainly a challenge. But I want to build on it a little bit if I can. So absolutely on confirmation bias, we we look for numbers that that confirm what we believe. This is everything from a, a gambler that believes that their lucky socks are, the, are the, the answer to all of their dreams and they forget all the times that they lost wearing those same socks, but they only remember the times that they won wearing those lucky socks. And, and then the same with data. If we believe that COVID's not real, and for avoidance of doubt, I believe COVID is real and I, I believe in vaccination. Everyone out there, please get vaccinated, double vaccinated and boosted, please. All right, so if you believe that COVID's not real, you will look for data that confirms that your, your belief, right? So that's your first confirmation bias. And then the second one that you're talking about is algorithmic bias, which is then if I'm on social media and I am reading and absorbing articles that tell me that COVID is not real, the algorithm, no, no human intervention here. The algorithm is just going to go, oh, and forgive me, Selena, to use you for a moment, but um, oh, Selena doesn't believe that COVID's real. I'm going to keep on feeding her the articles that say that COVID's not real. And, and before you know it, you're in that echo chamber that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure the Netflix doco on, I can't know what it's called, on social media, 
uh, it came out a couple of years ago, you know, that in terms of algorithmic bias, Instagram, Facebook know how long you're spending looking at ads. So if you hesitate as you scroll, it's picking that up and you're then, that's why you then see further ads for that product or a very similar product because it's picking up on that information. So yeah, it's exactly the same for news and, and influencers and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and then you start believing it because now... 95% of what you're seeing is confirming the belief that you had. And of course, some of those more extreme views are usually very clickbaity as well. Because if are you going to read a story that says, yep, to, today something not interesting happened? Or are you going to click on something that goes, oh, oh, I didn't know that? And click and then before you know it, you're down the rabbit's hole of that, of that echo chamber. Yeah, really interesting. All right, so where I wanted to take it, I want to show an example of what I've done when I've been managing large businesses and when I look at data. I love to do sensitivity analysis. I'm not a data expert like you, so I want you to give me your honest scorecard on what I'm going to talk about here. So when me and my team were looking at anything, whether it was market data, sales data, results data, I would ask these kind of questions. What if that assumption was true? What if that assumption was not true. And then we'd rerun the numbers and see what would happen to our business. If the assumption that we're making turns out to be false, what's going to happen to our business? Or if the assumption is about the investment of resources, what if we doubled it? What if we tripled it? What if we did 10 times as much? What would happen to the number? And what if we halved it? What if we did less of it? So I, I did a lot of sensitivity analysis to try and see what are the variables in my business that are actually the real things that impact our, our, our vision and what we're trying to achieve. Any feedback on sensitivity analysis? That, that was my way of doing it, but any feedback on that, whether that's any good and any advice you'd give to other business leaders looking to make sense of their numbers? It's a really good way of doing it. And to be honest, there's, there's probably a lot of leaders and team leaders and executives that either don't have the time or don't have the confidence to run or lead a conversation like that. So one of the things that I've seen is that employees and, and middle and senior leaders say to me often, you know, I'm meant to use data in my work, but I'm not sure how. If if that's you, go back and listen to what Mick just said and give that conversation a go because actually what we need is leaders modeling the conversations, finding the time to have them, but also stepping people through that process because if you said to your team the first time around, I want you to do a sensitivity analysis or engage or think about whether or not this data is useful for us, there'd be plenty of people probably in your team that wouldn't have known where to start or what that looked like. So in a lot of ways, we actually need to not assume that people have got the skills, but think about how can we as leaders structure these conversations and almost scaffold them quite heavily because if you've got somebody coming into a meeting about data that is really has not had much experience at all, they're not going to engage in the conversation. They're not going to know where to start it, but they are going to learn from other people and listening to what they're saying and what they're thinking and the questions that are being asked. So it's almost like I, I feel like collectively we're trying to raise the low water mark. Uh, and build people's data, even data literacy skills, uh, engaging them in data storytelling. And one of the really good ways to do it, um, and that's something I work with organizations all the time on, is scaffolding the process like that. Down the track, if you were then to step away from that team, I have no doubt that after they've done it a few times or after a few months, you could step out and go, okay, I've got, you know, I'm in this meeting or I'm traveling today, but I want you to run that same process. And you'd like to think that after a few opportunities for them to practice that they could go and run with it themselves. And they might even take it in a slightly different direction, which is great. But if we're, if you're setting them up like that, you're building their capacity and giving them, I guess, opportunity to engage in the conversation um, where maybe they weren't able to before. So yeah, I reckon that's a great example of doing it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the vote of confidence. And, and for me, it's about not just taking the numbers on face value. It's asking the data should generate more questions than it gives answers. And then you deal with the answers of those questions. Does that make sense? So the, so the data is there for you to look at. And now you question the data and go, what is this telling us? And what if we did this? What if we did that? And then you work on those results rather than just, oh, 
the data said this, so we've got to turn left, right? So, yeah, that, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at those different perspectives is really important. And the other thing, just to pick up on that other thing you, you started with then, I always say to people, data doesn't actually tell you what to do. There's, you're not looking at it and thinking straight away, okay, this you know, I see this metric, therefore this is my action. If our jobs were that easy and if humans were that easy, you know, we'd probably get a lot more sleep and be a lot less stressed. There are so many possible responses to the information that we're being given. So opening up collaborative and open conversations with teams in the way that you mentioned is really important. Yeah, cool. I'm going to ask a question now that maybe we should have started with because we're, we're well down the track now, but how do we make sure we're measuring the right thing in the first place? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I often work with organizations and and one of the first questions I get asked is, you know, okay, so what do we need to pay attention to? And I always flip that back on an organization and I say, well, you tell me what matters to you. There is no shortage of data. A joke that I often make is that I'm never invited into organizations that, that say to me, hey, Selena, can you come in and help us find more data? We need We need some more. It's always... Selena, we've got all this information and we're actually not using it all that well. So one of the things that I often do with teams and with leaders is to get them to think about and brainstorm all of the different types of information that they've got access to. So I worked with a team recently and they came up with a list of 46 types of data that they can access. Now, it's not possible to use and act on 46 types of information at any one time. So if, if you kind of are, are in this position as a leader or you're running a team, I'd encourage you to think about doing that, even as a group, brainstorm all of the different types of information that you've got. After that, think about, well, what actually is most useful to me and why? And shorten your list and kind of cut out some of the noise. So we're cutting down the 46 types down to maybe eight or 10 or something that's a lot more manageable. That for me, I guess, is where we can then start the conversation about are we measuring the right things and what are we doing with it? Because we, if we come in at the 46 data sets conversation level, it's too hard, it's too broad. Um, and every single data set that we use has got its own data literacy that sits around it. So if we're talking about you know, market share, for example, that means something really different to a profit margin. It means real, something really different to a staff turnover. So all of those different data sets have this context that sits around them. So we can't be asking people and expecting people to use all of those data sets because not only can they not action them and work on them all at the same time, they actually all mean something slightly different. So yeah, for me, that's kind of the main way that I would start with an organization, prioritizing what actually matters to you. Yeah. What matters to you? What makes that important to you? And uh, what is the common understanding of what it's trying to, trying to tell you? So what questions are you actually trying to answer for this? And what are you going to do with it afterwards? These are all really good, challenging questions to ask each other. The other one that I, I often see people miss is the difference between causation and correlation. Any advice that you can give to people to make sure that they are actually isolating what is the variable that is making a difference in all of this versus what is just an after effect? Yeah. So correlation is not causation. So what that means is that if we see two things kind of working together or there's a relationship between two factors. We call that correlation. So there's something that's similar. So in my book, I use the example, there's plenty of really quite funny examples of correlation on the internet if you do want to Google it. So um, there's one around the number of Nicolas Cage movies in a year and the number of drowning deaths. Um, and there's a correlation between those two. Now, we know that the more movies that Nicolas Cage is in does not lead to more people drowning in swimming pools. So there is not a causation. Yeah, there is a correlation between those two things, not a causation. So and it's funny, I it's in my book, actually. I saw a, an image recently on LinkedIn and it was a photo of a, like a shed uh, or like a, uh, like a metal undercover area. And one of the posts had obviously been hit by a car and it had buckled and the roof was down. And so you can imagine this kind of buckled post and then kind of caved in roof. And there was a cat sitting at the top of the part where it was caved in. 
And, you know, it was the meme, if you like, was around, you know, this is correlation, not causation. The cat didn't cause the post buckle. And I'm saying that in a lighthearted way, but it is actually really important because what you don't want is to look at one metric and think, okay, because of that thing, that must be because of this. So therefore there's a really direct cause and effect relationship. As I said before, there, you know, there are so many factors that contribute to any of the data sets and the values that we get. And humans and businesses are not simple in that it's not just a simple input-output model like a machine. So we can't we can't think of metrics and data sets like that either. We can only get to the point of causation when there is really rigorous investigation into the metrics. So we're collecting a lot of different information. It might be longitudinal. It might be over time. So rather than just looking at a a point in time result, it's looking at what's happening as a pattern over the last six months, you know, year, two years, whatever it might be. It's also finding more information out about that element or the thing that we're focusing on. So you might look at sales, your sales might've dropped in the recent quarter, and we can't assume that it's just to do say with customer service. But if we had a hunch that maybe that is a factor and that's contributing to sales, then we'd need to actually go and collect more evidence about that and start to see what's happening in the following quarter and the one after that, before we can think about causation. Causation really is heavily, you know, in a science or in a medical field, it's really well, significantly well researched. So we know, for example, that, you know, being overweight, for example, contributes to the chance of heart disease in the long term. That's a that's a clear kind of causation relationship. It's not correlation. It's causation because there have been decades of research into that phenomenon and the connection between weight and obesity and heart disease. So that's kind of the avenue, I guess, or the distinction between the two. But having other people around you as well to query the information, to have the conversations, back to that really great example you shared before of getting your team to think about, you know, well, what does this actually mean? What's the reality? What's What would happen if we doubled it? What if we said that this actually wasn't the case? All of those things can build your understanding of a correlation or why those things might be happening, but we don't want to jump to causation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Really good. Uh, great advice. Um, uh, and a really great example. I love the examples that you use there, particularly of the Nicholas Cage one. I hadn't, hadn't heard of that one. That was really cool. All right. So what about when our own kind of actions through the data become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Now, I'm going to talk about stock markets here for a moment. And stock markets can fluctuate for all kinds of reasons. They can can be world events. It can be uh, stock market crash because it turns out that the structure of the the market was on not on solid ground. Could be all kinds of things, but one of the ones is the trend of itself, right? So if a lot of people are buying a certain stock in a certain company, the valuation of that co- uh, stock goes up by simple supply and demand. And the same thing if if people start dumping, let's say Bitcoin. And they start panicking and go, oh, oh, Bitcoin is is rubbish. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And we've seen what's happened to Bitcoin this year, right? How do we make sure our own kind of actions don't become a self-propelling prophecy of that data? That's a really good question. The thing with, you know, the stock market and say crypto this year that I would say is, you know, even coming back to that idea of looking at multiple sources of data, like looking at triangulation. So, if you just looked at any shares you own or crypto, for example, or shares, I'll use the shares example. So you might look at a stock that has dropped. So when COVID hit and when things, or when everything kind of shut down in 2020, you know, the stock market in Australia took a massive dive. And you might look at that and that plenty of people did and freaked out and went, oh my goodness, all of these things are happening. It's dropping off a cliff. Um, I'm going to sell. But also, and at the same time, what was happening in that instance, and this is where that second piece of information or understanding of the context is also important. When people buy shares, they often have limit prices on the share value. So what they do is when they buy it, they say, okay, you know, this is my maximum value. So if the share gets to this point, I'm going to automatically sell. 
And if the share drops in value down to this point, I'm automatically going to sell. So what was happening was that a lot of the sales that happened in that stock market crash in 2020 were actually led by those limit, those bottom limits. Yeah. Which was then this, like, as you say, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's, you know, it starts to drop, it hits people's low watermark that then automatically sells their shares. It's dropping further, it's hitting more. And then they're kind of in this cycle. So yeah, that's where, you know, and it was pretty horrific to, to watch and be a part of if you had shares at the time. But knowing that that's what was happening, you know, for me, and I've got a a few shares, I don't have many, but for me, it was like, okay, that's really hard to watch. But I also am super aware that this is what's happening in the background. So I'm just going to hold on for the ride. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, good decision, I'd say. Yeah. All right. Very good. That's probably a good segue to this next one. And this this one's going to be a borderline uh, ethics question, I think. So machine learning is changing the world without any doubt, right? And sometimes for very good reasons. But we're here talking about we should be data-informed, not data-driven. And in a machine learning world, the machine is doing the entire thing. Where do you think the ethics of innovation come in to know where, you know what, this is a perfect example where, where machine learning can do a better job than a human being, let it go. And other times where you go, no, let's, let's not apply machine learning to that one. Let's always have a human in the loop that's looking at a data-informed situation. Any thoughts? Yeah, a few. I reckon AI is incredibly powerful and can certainly cut down our work and the time that it takes in this space. But AI and machine learning should never be making final decisions for us and for our organizations or for our teams. Where I think the capacity in AI and machine learning is, is a lot of organizations, so you'll have different dashboards. So you'll have different visualization tools that show you different metrics and you might, depending on the different products and the the field that you're in, you'll have different dashboards. The problem with a lot of those dashboards at the moment is that you can get on and you can look at the visualizations. So that's great. They're often, they often have a lot of different pages and components. So at the moment, what it requires is somebody who's got the skill and the understanding of those dashboards to go in and look at some of those key metrics and some of the key kind of visualizations that they find most useful. And the more time we spend in there, the more likely we are to find things that we need to follow up and that we can potentially action or bring back to our team. For me, I think the role of AI is that if we imagine a world where we could log into that dashboard and we had some flags immediately that went, go and look at this, or this is dropped at this rate. So this is something that might be worth having a conversation about. Some tech platforms and dashboards allow us to have flags and alerts when different metrics hit a certain amount. You know, even on my website, I get a flag when my visitors have increased and are higher in a specific day than maybe what they were anticipating the day before. That's useful, but we we need technology to be drawing our attention to those things. At the same time, we need to be able to program and adapt the machine learning and AI to actually identify the things that matter to us. So in the same way, like I was saying before about we've got all of these different data sets and we need to think about what matters, we've also got a whole stack of different hundreds and hundreds of dashboards and visualizations available to us at any one time. So we need to be able to almost uh, teach and train Um, the AI to know what we care about and the metrics we value so that they are drawing our attention to the stuff that actually matters, not, you know, the absentee of your employees or whatever it might be that you can see. Um, If that's not important to you because it's not a huge factor in your organization or it doesn't impact your day-to-day because your employee, you know, absentee rates are generally pretty good, then why would we, we wouldn't want that coming up as our first flag or alert. So Yeah. At the end of the day, though, decisions and actions have got to be done by humans and made for humans. At the end of the day, you know, all the data we've got generally, it's generated by humans. At the end of the day, humans need to be looking at it and we need to be making decisions for humans. So 
while tech can make that process a little bit quicker in the middle and a little bit easier to see some of the trends at the end of the day, it's got to be us making the decisions to make sure they're fit for purpose. So we're back to data informed again, which, yeah, I like, I like where, you're, where you're going with that. I'll give you an example of where, and I'll, if you don't agree, just this is what diversity of thought's all about. So you shoot from the hip on this one, right? So an example where machine learning is really amazing is, is in areas like railway signaling, right? So we know that automated trains are actually, and there's going to be probably some people in the audience that are not so sure about this, but automated trains have a better safety record, have better on-time running, all of those things, because the algorithms that are running the train, if the optimal speed for that train right now is 56.753 kilometers per hour, it can almost drive the train at that speed, whereas a human being uh, cannot. And, you know, all of these things, right? So, so there are some, I'm going to call them controlled environments, where you know all of the things that could in, impact that train and you've designed it into the algorithm in such a way that off you go just, uh, by the way, we still have people sitting in operational control centers that are observing everything, but press the green button and an automated railway system almost just pretty much runs itself all day. What are your reactions to that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's not necessarily, that doesn't require a human sitting and making all of those decisions. If it's more efficient and effective for a machine to coordinate the speeds and the timings of trains, you know, in many ways, machines make fewer mistakes than people. Because when it's that data driven, there's actually a lot of capacity and, and room for that. And as you say, we still need people sitting in a control center or sitting in an air traffic control tower coordinating planes. But at the end of the day, those machines are making a lot of decisions for themselves and with the humans that are potentially um, kind of as a part of that. One of the things I often, so yes, absolutely. And where we can engage machines in that kind of technology or the scheduling, then why would we not do that? Like let's use people for the, you know, for the deep thinking and the work that has a greater impact on humans. So there's an example, I think it was in Guangzhou. No, no, it was in Shanghai. It was in Shanghai where there was a person of interest that they were looking for and they used the, the cameras in the city to be able to find that person in seven minutes, right? But then it was a physical human police officer that went and arrested that person based on the, based on the information that was there. So there's no way that you could put every foot policeman on the street it was around the, the Bund, I believe, right? So they could have put everyone into that sector and tried to find this person and they would not have found them in seven minutes. But then the human decision was to go, okay, yep, that is the person we're looking for, go and arrest them, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. And what I was going to say before is that there's sometimes a fear that machines and, and tech are going to take our jobs and there's a fear that, you know, well, what about all of those people and those police officers, like, are we going to do them out of a job or are the checkouts at our local supermarket that are automated? Are they going to do people out of jobs? But in reality, you know, globally, we have some of the lowest unemployment rates in human history. So actually technology isn't taking jobs from us in a, you know, and this is a massive generalization. It's changing the way of work and it's changing the roles that we do. But it, they're not necessarily taking our jobs. As you say, it's still requiring people to do that follow-up and to go and find that person. But a policing team would have really struggled to find that person by themselves um, without being able to use that AI. So, Yeah, really good. And just a, a quote uh, that I've heard or a stat that I've heard once, I, I need to find the source of this one, but it was 65% of people that are graduating from high school this year will end up doing a job in their career that doesn't even exist yet. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a there's a clip on YouTube that I saw, I reckon it would have been 10 years ago and it was called Shift Happens. So even look it up on YouTube and I'm sure they've redone it recently. But it, it was exactly that. It was where preparing kids in schools for jobs that don't exist and that that our current young people will go through 
multiple career changes in their work life. So what they graduate and believe, you know, and study for and what they want to do in their career won't necessarily be the same as what happens, you know, 10, 20 years down the track. So they'll change, they'll change the jobs that they're doing. Brilliant. Got one more question in the core of the interview and we'll get to our rapid round. And we are the Leadership Project, Selena. So I'd like you to give some advice to leaders out there that are, that are leading teams. And let's say that their mindset is exactly what your, your book says. They're either, I'm not a numbers person, or it might be the complete opposite. I'm a numbers person. I do everything data-driven. Any advice to leaders out there that are, that are having those mindset uh, either a very solid mindset, I'm a numbers person, or very solid mindset, I'm not a numbers person, I can't do this. Any advice? Regardless of where you kind of sit on this continuum of not being a numbers person to being one, the, the real strength in this, and this goes back to that last conversation about using humans and technology, we need to get people engaged in conversations about using data. So It is no longer the job of a team of analysts or the data scientists in our organization to do all of the data work and then all the the rest of us sit outside of that. In the there's been a couple of generations of business intelligence where initially the people who had access to the numbers were generally the CEO and, and the analysts only. In the second generation, there was more sharing. So more people would have access to the information, but it was generally you know, as an employee or as a team leader, if I wanted to know something, I needed to go to the the analysts and find out and I might get a report sent back to me. But we're moving to the third generation and of business intelligence and, and different organizations are, some organizations are already there, some are further away. It doesn't really, it's okay to be wherever you're at on, on this scale. But in the third generation of business intelligence, Everybody in the organization has got access to the information they need when they need it. And organizations are moving into a data democracy. And so rather than data being held by a group of people or being kind of behind, you know, like different logins and permissions, it's actually about opening up this conversation and making the information more accessible to others. So I worked with an organization recently where the marketing teams, they had about 15 people in marketing and about 30 in sales. And those two teams had no access to one another's data. So the marketing team was getting pretty frustrated that sales weren't happening and that as at the rate that they were expecting. And the sales team were getting frustrated with marketing because they felt that the marketing wasn't hitting the mark, if you like. It wasn't kind of doing the job of what they were trying to do. And the two weren't actually speaking to one another. So As leaders, the first thing really is around how can we start to build this culture in an organization where people have got access to all the information that they could potentially need, but then through what structures and processes in the organization are people actually talking about those metrics? So a really good way is having some organizations actually set up a data team or a group of people that that have an interest in this space. Some organizations also write data plans, so have really kind of clearly defined expectations for different teams and different leaders and different employees on what data they use, what they look for in the data, and then what they do about it once they've got it. So opening up this conversation and normalizing the fact that this is actually not one person's job anymore, or it's not the analyst's role, it's not that team of people, or it's not just the CEO. This is actually about all of us getting a better handle on the numbers and understanding all of our progress and performance and metrics a little bit better. I'm, I'm not a data scientist and I, I don't believe that we all need to be a data scientist, but we do need to be able to get all of our employees at a point where they can look at numbers and not be freaked out by them for starters. But actually engage in a decent conversation and ask some good questions and be a part of the decision-making. And so in some ways, I see myself in, in the gap between those two groups, the people who've never really used the numbers before and the scientists where, you know, back to that analogy of raising the low watermark, just trying to get people able to engage in the conversation. So as leaders, I reckon we've got a really key part to play in that. 
Wonderful. So engage in better conversations, ask better questions and let the data inform you in an in a open and transparent way is what I'm, what I'm hearing there. But even then, ask questions about the data. Don't just accept it on face value. That's, that's really powerful. Unfortunately, you, you brought up something I can't ignore now. So I said that that was going to be my last question. So now you're talking about sharing data within an organization. What I want to talk about is where commercial interests prevent organizations from sharing data outside their organization. Now I'm going to give you a a concrete example. I worked in the urban mobility world for 15 years and you have commercial companies that have access to their own data and yet our cities would run so much better if they were able to share. So I'm talking about Uber, Lyft, Lime, public transit, bus operators, rail operators, the traffic center, the traffic control center, all of these different entities, some of them private, some of them public, that have got data that tells them how their operation is going. So Uber, on any day, Uber knows oh, where is our you know, biggest concentration of people that want to get picked up right now. And so how do we break down commercial interest and get commercial entities to share data for the better good? The main fear that I've got even is the misuse and the mishandling of data. And we know we've all had our data sold off by one company to another and it's infuriating. And rather, or I guess, even beyond it being a breach of our own privacy, it's just annoying to be spammed with all those emails and and whatever. So, you know, I think more organizations are engaging in really strict non-disclosure agreements. But at the same time, as you say, it would actually be really beneficial for urban planning element of the government to be able to get that information. You know, again, I think for me, it probably comes back to the conversations. How can we open a conversation between those commercial entities and governments in that example and ascertain even what of all of their data that they've got. So they've got access, obviously, like say Uber, think about the millions and millions, like billions, trillions of data points that they've got. And organize, our government doesn't actually need all of that. So it might be potentially narrowing it down to some of those more summary statistics and the bigger picture numbers rather than all of the hugely personal and specific information about particular riders and that sort of thing. So. Your answer is good. So first of all, protecting people's privacy and making sure that we're using data for the right reasons and, and, and not using the data that we don't need, right? So I think that was powerful. But it's the conversation. And it's about having that conversation to see whether the entities can, uh, with an abundant mindset, can realize that maybe sharing the data amongst themselves is a win-win, not a, not a win-lose situation. Uber would benefit from public transit data Public transit agencies would benefit from Uber data. Urban planners would benefit from both, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, yeah, yeah, really good. The challenge, I guess, with it would be around competitors. So other rideshare, um, you know, taxis, for example, that from their perspective, I imagine might be one of their concerns. Yeah, I can't imagine Uber and Lyft sharing data with each other. But if there was a central agency that was responsible for urban the way the whole city moves, and that was a trusted third party even, um, then we, we might have a chance. Yeah. I thought I'd have a go at that one. It's, it's, it's one that plagues that industry and has done for many years, but I thought I'd have a go at that one with you. All right. That does bring us to an end. I'd like to ask you our rapid round uh, questions. So what's the one thing you know now, Selena, that you wish you knew when you were 20? I think that merging in terms of my work, that merging of the rational and the numbers with the narrative, just the power of those two things. If I could have articulated that 20 years ago. Brilliant. Okay. All right. What's your favorite book? I'm at the moment, I'm reading Noise by Daniel Kahneman and I really like what he talks about in terms of the amount of noise in judgments and in in my context in data sets, as well as all of the biases. So that's really got me thinking at the moment. So yeah. All right. What's your favorite quote? I really like Brene Brown's work on leaning into the discomfort. There's so much of our leadership journey that is uncomfortable and we need to be able to lean into the discomfort in order to lead change and lead people. Nice one. And finally, you're an independent contractor now that can help organizations with their data struggles, their data journey, whatever you want to call it. How do people get a hold of you if they'd like to know more, whether it's about your book or the services that you can help them with? 
Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn as Dr. Selena Fisk and um, my website is just selenafisk.com. So uh, all my contact details and everything are on there. Wonderful. And we'll put those links in the show notes. It's been such a joy, uh, Selena. I love this conversation and thank you for giving me the the license to just take us wherever the the conversation went and uh, you helped me kind of satiate my endless curiosity Uh, and I I feel richer for having this conversation so thank you so much Sina. No thanks Meg that's been really good and I like the curly questions it keeps it interesting makes me think. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Very good. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to The Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.